This is Who Deserves a Monument, Episode 4. So this episode was totally written and recorded and in the bag, as they say. And then this happened. When day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? The loss we carry, a sea we must wade. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace. And the norms and notions of what just is, isn't always just is. This, of course, is our National Youth Poet Laureate, 22-year-old Amanda Gorman, reciting her poem, The Hill We Climb, at President Biden's inauguration. I don't know about you, but she was the highlight of the inauguration for me. I thought everyone was great. I enjoyed all the music and the speeches. But the world stopped spinning for five minutes when Amanda Gorman spoke. She said that every app on her phone crashed because so many millions of people rushed to follow her and find her. My entire Instagram and Facebook feeds were photos of her and excerpts of her poem. Her books instantly became bestsellers. And her performance solved a challenge I had been facing. How could I ever make you feel the power that a poet could have on a nation? Now all I have to say is Frances Ellen Watkins Harper was Amanda Gorman in the 1850s and 1860s. Thank you and good night. Okay, okay, there's so much more to it than that. But boy, does this help. As Amanda Gorman descended the steps of the Capitol on January 20th, she looked out on an empty National Mall. The result of a pandemic that has killed more than 400,000 Americans. As a Black woman descending those steps, she no doubt carried with her the weight of the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the racial reckoning of 2020. She took to the podium just 14 days after an attempted insurrection, after insurgents attempted to overthrow our government. It's fair to say she faced a nation with much to grieve and much to heal. We've seen a force that would shatter our nation rather than share it, would destroy our country if it meant delaying democracy. And this effort very nearly succeeded. But while democracy can be periodically delayed, it can never be permanently defeated. In this truth, in this faith we trust, for while we have our eyes on the future, history has its eyes on us. Frances Harper, she also knew a little something about addressing a divided crowd. In 1869, she stands before the American Equal Rights Association. She's there to endorse a new amendment that prohibits states from making race a barrier to voting. She's been through it. She has created space for all women, but they haven't created space for her. So we're in the 1860s um, in Congress. Uh, There are constitutional amendments being proposed and ratified that um, make Black Americans citizens of the United States, um, but also move to protect the voting rights of African-American men um, and not women. This community of activists has to decide whether and to what degree they're going to support and promote and um, advocate for the ratification of these constitutional amendments. And much of the debate turns on the question of whether or not it is advisable, desirable, tenable, or um, necessary to insist upon women's voting rights. That's Martha Jones. 
I'm Martha Jones. Uh, I teach history at Johns Hopkins University, and I'm the author of Vanguard, uh, How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote, and Insisted on Equality for All. I'm a legal and cultural historian uh, whose work centers on the role that Black Americans play in the story of American democracy. To be a Black woman in the 1860s is to be at the end of a long line. The constitutional amendments on the table are the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. The 13th prohibits slavery. The 14th defines citizenship and prevents discrimination based on race. And the 15th gives voting rights to Black men. Well, at least in theory. Lots more on that to come in the podcast. White women, many of whom had fought for an end to slavery, were shocked that they wouldn't be given the right to vote before or at the same time as Black men. This slight, as they saw it, brought white feminist racism right up to the surface. Here's what Susan B. Anthony, a known white woman, wrote in the February 1869 issue of Revolution Newspaper. The old anti-slavery school says women must stand back and wait until the Negroes shall be recognized. But we say, if you will not give the whole loaf of suffrage to the entire people, give it to the most intelligent first. If intelligence, justice, and morality are to have precedence in the government, let the question of woman be brought up first and that of the Negro last. Oh, Susan. Here's Martha Jones again. The story is often told as a standoff between Frederick Douglass on the one hand, who argues that voting rights are a matter of life and death for African-American men, and figures like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who um, calls for qualified suffrage that would um, privilege the voting rights of middle-class white American women over the rights of African-Americans, immigrants, and others. That's how the story is often told. Um, And sometimes it's told to discredit Black men uh, and accuse them of sexism, and sometimes it's told to uh, discredit white women and um, brand them racists. Both things might be true. But enter Frances Ellen Watkins Harper um, into these scenes, um, someone whose political life and political future, um, of course, is not bounded by merely race or merely sex, If William Parker's story is one of physical resistance, Frances Harper's is about intellectual resistance, artistic and spiritual resistance. She both ignored the boundaries set for her based on race and sex and confronted them head on. Her words alone shifted the course of history. So was she qualified? Despite the odds, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper was overqualified. Went down to the river Jordan, where John baptized three. Where I want the devil in hell, said Johnny baptized me. I say, Roll, You must realize she was born in 1825, and there was, there was no sort of general concept of public education in the United States at all. So most schools were started by um, people who had the foresight to educate the more general population. Her uncle, who was a free person of color, uh, realized this responsibility. This is Melba Joyce Boyd. 
She wrote a great biography of Frances Harper that I draw from a lot in this episode. My name is Melba Joyce Boyd. I'm a distinguished university professor at Wayne State University and also adjunct professor at the University of Michigan. Um, and I'm a poet and I'm also a literary biographer. So Melba was telling us about Harper's uncle, William Watkins, a brilliant and fascinating man who raised her in Baltimore after her parents died when she was young. Like William Parker, Frances Harper was also an orphan. Her uncle was also an abolitionist, and he was um, advocating for the, the end of slavery. Martha Jones again. William Watkins is an activist and an educator. He is a founder uh, of the Legal Rights Association in Baltimore, an organization that is especially concerned with understanding where Black Americans stand before the law, before the Constitution, in the years before the Civil War. Most of Baltimore's um, activists uh, in the generation before the Civil War have been educated in William Watkins's school. Uncle William was a shoemaker by trade who learned the English language and much of Greek, Latin, and medicine purely by independent study. He was also a preacher, a minister at Baltimore's Sharp Street Methodist Episcopal Church, and an incendiary writer. He opposed slavery and colonization, and he wrote about them in the strongest terms. He didn't just fight for Black rights. He also fought for Native Americans who were being colonized out of their lands. He was a radical advocate for the disenfranchised and was a major influence on William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass, despite never achieving their level of notoriety. His school in Baltimore, the William Watkins Academy for Negro Youth, offered a rigorous education in the classics. This was a hard school. It was designed to produce the best writers and the most critical thinkers. Students wrote essays every day, and every aspect of their writing was examined and refined. Every day, they took classes in Bible study, history, geography, math, English, natural philosophy, Greek, Latin, music, and rhetoric. Here's Melba Boyd. I mean, it was a very, very strenuous uh, curriculum, probably equivalent to getting a PhD in our time. There weren't many jobs women could hold in those days, and even fewer jobs for Black women. Knowing her vocation would be just as important, if not more so, than her academic education. Frances became an accomplished seamstress, getting her first job around age 14. I think she did work as a domestic for a man who owned a bookstore. And he was very open and generous and appreciative of her, of her intelligence. And she had open access to the bookstore, which, of course, was, you know, a blessing, right, as a part of uh, this basic uh, need to be able to support yourself. So Frances is reading voraciously and writing all the time. She publishes her first book of poetry in 1846 at 21 years old. It's called Forest Leaves. This book, thought lost for 150 years, was recently discovered by a graduate student researching her thesis at the Maryland Historical Archives. It's a treasure chest of love, death, sorrow, biblical allegories, a window into the work to come in her lifetime. Newspaper critics were so surprised by the quality of the work that they thought someone else must have written it. 
But yes, even her first book of poetry received critical attention. While most of the poems in Forest Leaves can be interpreted as non-political, one poem in particular reveals the abolitionist fire that burns in Francis's heart. It's called Bible Defense of Slavery. Remember William Parker and Henry Klein shouting Bible verses at each other in the last episode? People used the Bible to defend slavery all the time. Just good Christians doing what the good book says, right? Francis thought otherwise. Here's part of that poem. An infidel could do no more to hide his country's guilty blot than spread God's holy record o'er the loathsome leprous spot. And when ye pray for heathen's lands and plead for dark benighted shores, remember slavery's cruel hands make heathens at your doors. She continued to write and publish her poems even as she left Maryland in 1850 to live in Ohio and teach at Union Seminary. She was the school's first female teacher, and the male teachers were not happy about it. But Frances was an eager and effective teacher, so she won the principal over easily. We'd probably assume she taught English, right? She's a brilliant writer and poet. Yeah, but this was 1850, so Frances taught courses in serving and embroidery. And she lived out her days with a needle in her hand and a poem in her heart. Just kidding. There's no way Frances Ellen Watkins Harper could run from the fires of injustice that burned inside of her. She couldn't sit back and watch as her people were degraded and dehumanized. It took one cruel new law to steal her courage and seal her fate as an activist. But let me go. I'm weary here and fevers scorch my brain. I long to feel my native air breathe o'er each burning vein. So it's 1850. Do you remember where we were in 1850? The Compromise. The new Fugitive Slave Act that says basically any suspected fugitive can be captured and dragged into slavery, and any other American has to assist in the capture. Well, in 1853, the state of Maryland, a slave state with 25,000 free black people in Baltimore, decides to take it several steps further. They decide that any person of color who enters the state through its northern border can be sold into slavery. For Francis, this is personally devastating. Her aunt and uncle who raised her, her whole family are in Baltimore, and she is now exiled. If she returns home, she risks her freedom in the surest of terms. It doesn't take long for the new law to take its first victims. After learning of the death of a free man who was sold into slavery for crossing into Maryland, Francis writes, Upon that grave, I pledged myself to the anti-slavery cause. It may be that God himself has written upon both my heart and brain a commission to use time, talent, and energy in the cause of freedom. Francis immediately leaves home and heads to Philadelphia, the Grand Central Station of the Underground Railroad. Do you remember William Still from the last episode? He runs the Vigilance Society in Philadelphia. So Francis knows William, and she visits him at the anti-slavery office to find out what she can do. While she's visiting, she stays at the Underground Railroad stop and listens to the stories of the runaways and conductors who pass through. Their terrors, their tears, their fights become hers. Her words become their pathway to freedom. Because back then, words had to do more than make you hear or even feel. 
they had to make you see. In a time before television and film, when photography was limited, enslaved people had no control over how they were portrayed. You, 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 you the laziest man I ever did see. What's wrong with you and I? What's wrong with you? I'm tired, oh, tired. I'm tired nothing. You, you can do nothing longer than anybody I ever did see. But I don't feel well. Whether it was the faithful, malleable, and hardworking servant, or the lazy, ignorant clown in a minstrel show, media and entertainment shaped public opinion back then, just as they do today. That's why the black press and the anti-slavery press were so important. They presented a wholly different narrative of educated, sensitive, fully formed people who were mothers and brothers and sons, whose hopes and dreams and fears were no different from anyone else's. And Francis's poems, they do that too. They bring humanity to a dehumanized people. With her poems, Died of Starvation and The Slave Mother, Francis takes something understood, the plight of the poor, starving whites in Victorian England, and compares it with something foreign, the agony of an enslaved mother being separated from her child. The point is, a mother loves her children above all else, no matter her race. Here's Died of Starvation, about poor white women in England. Sadly crouching by the embers, her famished children lay. She longed to gaze upon them as her spirit passed away. But the embers were too feeble. She could not see each face. So she clasped her arms around them. Twas their mother's last embrace. And now, the slave mother. They tear him from her circling arms, her vast and fond embrace. Oh, never more may her sad eyes gaze on his mournful face. No marvel then these bitter shrieks disturb the listening air. She is the mother, and her heart is breaking in despair. Many of Frances Harper's poems are ripped from the headlines true stories of defiance, heroism, and sacrifice that would otherwise be buried or reduced to whispers in the fields. She takes those murmurs, those memories, and turns them into anthems. The Tennessee Hero is about an enslaved man who took a fatal beating rather than betray his comrades who were plotting their escape. Here's part of that poem. They brought the hateful lash and scourge with murder in each eye. But a solemn vow was on his lips. He had resolved to die. Yet rather than betray his trust, he'd meet a death of pain. Twas sweeter far to meet it thus than wear a treason stain. Her poems lay the foundation for her anti-slavery speeches. By 1854, Frances has published her second book of poetry, Miscellaneous Subjects, and embarked on an ambitious anti-slavery speaking tour. She can't just hop on television and reach millions of people at once. She's got to go room by room, town by town, to try to end slavery. And despite the critical acclaim for her work, she still faces skepticism as a Black woman. 
Remember, Black people are still enslaved in 1854. Minstrel shows had turned African Americans into caricatures, mocking them for entertainment. Amanda Gorman, she won't even be born for another 144 years. The country has a long way to go, but there were some advantages. Here's Martha Jones. The power of being a Black woman on the anti-slavery lecture circuit is your capacity to not only preach to the choir, but to attract the curious, to attract those who are provoked, to attract detractors. And across the span of her early public life, Frances Harper meets head on with those who would dislodge her from the podium, discredit her and more. So she basically had a lot of haters, but that was exactly who she needed to reach. Here's Melba Boyd again. That William Steele, I think, sent out when she was speaking um, in Philadelphia, of all places. Um, And he makes a note in the um, flyer that's posted and goes out that says, um, many of you uh, may not know or have heard of of Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, but she is a woman of um, superior intellect. He has to, in a way, convince people that you should come hear this Black woman speak. So when she's speaking, she has got to impress people. And so much of their prejudice is going to have to do with the way that she handles the English language, the way that she projects her image, the way that she handles herself. So she has to speak and dress and move perfectly. But she also has to captivate the audience with a compelling argument against slavery. Here's Martha Jones. Um, The longstanding tradition and philosophy of the American Anti-Slavery Society is to moral suasion. It's to transform the hearts and the minds of Americans rather than to use politics or law in order to bring about the end of slavery. And so Harper's capacity to not only get to the venue, to stand at the podium, but to hold an audience spellbound uh, for um, not minutes, but perhaps for hours, is a necessary prerequisite of being an anti-slavery lecturer. Based on the reviews, spellbound isn't a stretch for Francis. A well-known white poet, Grace Greenwood, wrote an article about one of Francis's speeches, published in the Philadelphia Independent. Next on the course was Mrs. Harper, a colored woman. She has a noble head, the bronze muse, a strong face with a shadowed glow upon it. She speaks without notes, her gestures few and fitting. The woe of 200 years sighed through her tones. As I listened to her, there swept over me in a chill wave of horror. The realization that this noble woman, had she not been rescued from her mother's condition, might have been sold on the auction block to the highest bidder. Her intellect, fancy, eloquence, the flashing wit that might make the delight of a Parisian salon and her pure Christian character all thrown in. The recollection that women like her could be dragged out of public conveyance in our own city. Yes, Grace, that. Guys, that is the whole point. Frances is the counter-narrative. She is the opposite of what people have been led to believe about African Americans for centuries. 
Her very presence is the argument against slavery. When they see her and hear her speak, they can no longer believe that the Black race is inherently inferior. She is so darn superior. Mary Shad Carey, herself a legendary Black feminist abolitionist, wrote that Frances Harper was the greatest female speaker of all time, and that she was smart enough to avoid speaking at the same events because there was no chance anyone would like her more. Why does it matter that she's such a great speaker? Think back to our last episode, to the Christiana Rebellion. Slavery didn't end all at once. It ended slowly over decades, as more and more ordinary people decided to stop propping it up, stop enforcing it. More and more people who heard speakers like Frances Harper. Through her words, they faced the evils, and they learned what they could do, who they could elect, how they could act to mount a resistance. Unfortunately, we don't have the text of hardly any of Frances Harper's speeches, just newspaper reviews and her poetry. But her letters, her letters to people like William Still and John Brown, yes, John Brown of the famous raid on Harper's Ferry, her letters paint a picture. This is from a letter to William Still, where she speaks of white men. Let them feel that, from the ceaseless murmur of the Atlantic, to the sullen roar of the Pacific, from the thunders of the rainbow-crowned Niagara to the swollen waters of the Mexican Gulf. They have no shelter for their bleeding feet or resting place for their defenseless heads. Let prejudice assign them the lowest places and humblest positions. Let their income be so small that they must bequeath to their children an inheritance of poverty and a limited education. And tell me, reviler of our race, censurer of our people, if there is a nation in whose veins runs the purest Caucasian blood, upon whom the same causes would not produce the same effects, whose social conditions, intellectual and moral character would present a more favorable aspect than ours. I don't know about you, but she makes me want to write better emails. She obviously becomes a draw at these society meetings, so her speaking schedule is grueling. At one point, she visits 21 cities and towns and delivers 31 lectures in six weeks. She's in Maine, New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Canada, visiting the very settlement where William Parker now lives. She's holding hundreds of people captivated. She's circulated and sold thousands of her books, 37 cents at a time, sending generous donations back to the Underground Railroad. With every speech, every story, she gives a new wave of people the language and experience they need to join the fight to end slavery. Her words are making a difference, but the road ahead is long. With every week, a new innocent is captured, another escape thwarted. Each new loss weighs heavy on her exiled heart. By 1858, her health is failing. She's lost her voice and feels so weak that she's preparing for her death. She writes to William Still, my health is not very strong, and I may have to give up before long. Slavery comes up like a dark shadow between me and the home of my childhood. Well, perhaps it is my lot to die from home and be buried among strangers. And yet, I do not regret that I espoused this cause. Make me a grave wherever you will in a lowly plain or a lofty hill. Make it among Earth's humblest graves, but not 
in a land where men are slaves. This stanza that she includes at the end of her letter becomes the beginning of her most famous poem, Bury Me in a Free Land, the poem that became her epitaph, the poem found in the trunk of Aaron Stevens, one of John Brown's collaborators at Harper's Ferry, after his execution. The poem continues. I could not rest if around my grave I heard the steps of a trembling slave. His shadow above my silent tomb would make it a place of fearful gloom. I could not rest if I heard the tread of a coffle gang to the shambles led, and the mother's shriek of wild despair rise like a curse on the trembling air. I could not sleep if I saw the lash drinking her blood at each fearful gash. And I saw her babes torn from her breasts like trembling dogs from their parent nest. I would sleep, dear friends, where bloated might can rob no man of his dearest right. My rest shall be calm in any grave where none can call his brother a slave, I ask no monument, proud and high, to arrest the gaze of the passers-by. All that my yearning spirit craves is bury me not in a land of slaves. The good news is, she lived. In 1860, she married Fenton Harper. They bought a small farm outside of Columbus, Ohio, with the earnings from her royalties and lectures. She made butter and sold it in the farmer's market. In 1862, she had a daughter and named her Mary. She was her pride and joy. And she lived happily ever after, butter churn in hand. Okay, okay, you got me. There's so much more to come. In 1864, her husband Fenton dies suddenly and in debt. Frances finds herself widowed and penniless. Within three months, creditors have come and taken every last thing, including her wash tubs and milk crocks, even her butter churner. She knows this would never happen if the roles were reversed and her husband was left a widower. She has no other choice but to take her daughter and move to Philadelphia, relying on support from William Still and his wife to get on her feet. Yet again, she's faced with the brutal realities of being both black and a woman, and her resolve to abolish slavery and gain women's rights is strengthened once again. But first, abolishing slavery. And let me tell you, Abraham Lincoln's first draft of the Emancipation Proclamation needed work. It's time for a monumental moment, colonization. Here's Martha Jones. Colonization's commitment is to the removal of former slaves from the United States. Um, Black and white people are, in the colonization view, not destined to live, work, and govern together, um, must not do so. Um, The U.S. must remain a white man's republic. Um, And by the 18-teens, colonization 
business become organized. Um, now they are raising funds and outfitting ships and uh, establishing colonies in West Africa um, to which they um, commit uh, to relocating formerly enslaved people in the U.S. Um, so Francis Harper is from Baltimore, which is a hotbed of colonization. Um, it, the state not only has its own colonization society, it creates its own colony, Maryland in Liberia. Did you guys know that? Uh, Baltimore is a major port from which um, Black Americans are removed and um, travel to Liberia. Some Black Americans join and relocate to Liberia as part of the colonization experiment. But for the most part, they reject this idea that they must leave the land they were born in and live somewhere else. Frances Harper is no exception. Uh, in 1862, when Abraham Lincoln is drafting what we now know was the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln uh, shows his cards. He will provide um, yes for the manumission of enslaved people, but also as a companion, their colonization out of the United States. So Frances Harper closely reads this first draft of the Emancipation Proclamation. She sees that Confederate states have 100 days to surrender or their slaves will be freed. Great. That gets a check mark. But she also sees that the president will remove those people freed by the proclamation to Canada, Liberia, or elsewhere. This is not okay. So she does what she does, and she gives a speech. It's called The War and the President's Colonization Scheme. And she tells Lincoln he better think twice. Here's Martha Jones. And so um, she uh, is, um, I think, quick and forceful in her denunciation of Lincoln um, on the eve of um, his issuance of the, um, the final Emancipation Proclamation, and perhaps not by virtue of the critique leveled by Watkins Harper, but consistent with it, um, Lincoln's final Emancipation Proclamation issued on January 1st, 1863, um, will come out um, without that provision for the colonization of former slaves. We are striving to forge our union with purpose, to compose a country committed to all cultures, colors, characters, and conditions of man. And so we lift our gaze not to what stands between us, but what stands before us. After the Civil War ends, Frances Harper becomes a conscience for the entire nation, speaking to all men and women, black and white, about what it means to reconstruct the nation. At this point, after standing up to Lincoln, she's one of the most sought-after speakers and political commentators in the country. She would be on Meet the Press, like, every week. But again, this is pre-TV, so she's just got to hit the road. In the spring of 1867, Frances Harper makes her way to the South to help with Reconstruction, and she returns frequently for the next four years. As she forms schools and churches and delivers lectures, she lives with freed slaves, again listening to their stories, learning about their culture, and assuming their own struggles. She travels alone throughout the entire South, risking her life, essentially camping out in towns in the midst of horrific racially motivated violence. In South Carolina, she writes about the burning of a jail that killed all Black prisoners, while the sole white prisoner mysteriously managed to escape. She talks of being treated to first-class passage on the railroad, 
knowing that a black teenage girl in the state had just been hanged for saying she would marry a Yankee. She writes to a friend that she herself is to speak in a place where a black man has recently been shot after speaking at a public meeting. She says she's not particularly afraid. After her return to Philadelphia, she writes a book based on her travels in the South. Sketches of Southern Life is the fictional narrative of Aunt Chloe, an elderly, formerly enslaved woman who explains her trials and triumphs as a long poem. The book was regarded by Black critics then and for many years as the most accurate description of Black life in the South. It did something else very important. It bridged the gap between standard English and the Black dialect common among formerly enslaved people in the South. Here's Melba Boyd. By her writing in a dialect style, um, sketches of Southern life uh, becomes the, um, the text where she begins to do some writing in the voice of the newly freed people. And she does it in a manner that also conveys their intelligence, their sensitivity, um, unlike a lot of the dialect that was being written at the time, which made um, people who came from the community as, you know, being uh, not very intelligent. That book was also um, used in these freedom schools. Um, and it helps with the young people to transition into standard English, but also understanding that their language is not necessarily a language that is deprived of intelligence or music or beauty. Um, and I think that that was just such a really, really uh, revolutionary thing that she did. As we know, because it persists today, the end of slavery was far from the end of suffering, discrimination, and racial violence. It was just the beginning of Black codes, strict local and state laws that detailed when, where, and how formerly enslaved people could work and how much they could be paid. It kept many in a form of indentured servitude and controlled where they lived and how they traveled. Because of that, the issue of voting rights for Black men, while far from perfect, was an issue of survival for Black women. Lynchings and other physical violence were common. But for Frances Harper, it was the everyday indignities that withered her soul. Traveling, which she needed to do constantly, was next to impossible. Frances was regularly removed from streetcars, her money thrown on the ground, conductors refusing to proceed until she got off. She regularly speaks of these incidents including at the 1866 National Women's Rights Convention in New York. Here's Martha Jones. And it is a distinct experience of having been um, jostled, accosted, assaulted, and more um, when traveling as an anti-slavery lecturer, when traveling to these very meetings where these issues are being debated. And she makes an appeal to her colleagues to uh, develop a political vision that would extend beyond the question of political rights and go directly to the dignity and the safety of women like Frances Harper. She has choice words uh, for the folks at, that, at, at those gatherings. Frances saw Harriet Tubman just before this 1866 convention, and Tubman was bruised and battered. 
a conductor had violently removed her from a streetcar. Tubman fought back. An American hero, a Union commander, responsible for saving countless lives, had been thrown to the streets because of institutional racism. It's safe to say that Frances has had enough when she approaches the lectern at the 1866 National Women's Rights Convention. Yes, slavery has been abolished, but there is so much work to be done. Wait, rewind, or fast forward? Before we get to Frances, dare I share another very famous speech as a warm-up? Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. 100 years later, the Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. And so we've come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. This, of course, is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous I Have a Dream speech given in front of the Lincoln Memorial in 1963. Nearly a hundred years earlier, did Frances Harper predict the struggle to come? Did Martin Luther King Jr. read her speech before he wrote his? Here's Francis in 1866. This grand and glorious revolution which has commenced will fail to reach its climax of success until throughout the length and breadth of the American Republic, the nation shall be so colorblind as to know no man in the color of his skin or the curl of his hair. It will then have no privileged class trampling upon and outraging the unprivileged classes, but will then be one great privileged nation whose privilege will be to produce the loftiest manhood and womanhood that humanity can attain. She describes what happened after her husband died, how agents swept the house and took all of her possessions, how she couldn't afford to keep her three stepchildren and had to send them away with family. How her neighbor, to whom she had once lent $5, went before a judge to swear she wasn't a resident and lay claim to her bed, her actual bed. She then delivers one of her most famous lines. We're bound up together in one great bundle of humanity. 
and society cannot trample on the weakest and feeblest of its members without receiving the curse in its own soul. You tried that in the case of the Negro. You pressed him down for two centuries, and in so doing, you crippled the moral strength and paralyzed the spiritual energies of the white men of the country. She reminds the audience of the cruelty of telling a people they're good enough for soldiers, good enough to die for their cause, but not good enough for citizens. You white women here speak of rights, I speak of wrongs. I, as a colored woman, have had in this country an education which has made me feel as if I were in the situation of Ishmael. My hand against every man and every man's hand against me. Let me go tomorrow morning and sit in one of your streetcars and the conductor will put up his hand and stop the car rather than let me ride. Here she speaks of her friend, Harriet Tubman. We have a woman in our country who has received the name of Moses, a woman who has gone down into the Egypt of slavery and brought out hundreds of our people into liberty. The last time I saw that woman, her hands were swollen. That woman who had led one of Montgomery's most successful expeditions, who was brave enough and secretive enough to act as a scout for the American army, had her hands all swollen from a conflict with a brutal conductor who undertook to eject her from her place. Talk of giving women the ballot box? Go on. It is a normal school, and white women of this country need it. While there exists this brutal element in society which tramples upon the feeble and treads down the weak, I tell you that if there is any class of people who need to be lifted out of their airy nothings and selfishness, it is the white women of America. Here's Martha Jones. She's skeptical about whether giving white women the vote, for example, will actually transform the lived experience of African-American women, right? White women are not dewdrops exhaled from the sky. She has a very real view of the limits of uh, white women and their politics in this period. And at the same time, she does offer a, a view, a political philosophy in her wonderfully poetic phrase, we are all bound up together in one great bundle of humanity. And here Watkins Harper really offers up African-American women as the measure of what this coalition and ultimately what the nation will accomplish during uh, the years after the Civil War, during Reconstruction. And um, it is a remarkably expansive and visionary perspective um, expressed in a moment when um, people are really duking it out. She is prepared to jettison all of that and to call for um, a politics of humanity. Immediately after this speech, Susan B. Anthony rises from the audience and calls for common cause among Black women and white women. She resolves Whereas by the act of emancipation and the civil rights bill, the Negro and woman now hold the same civil and political status alike, needing only the ballot. And whereas the same arguments apply equally to both classes, proving all partial legislation fatal to the Republican institutions. 
therefore resolve that the time has come for an organization that shall demand universal suffrage. And hereafter, we shall be known as the American Equal Rights Association. As we know, this momentary triumph will not last. When it comes down to it, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony will change course and call for qualified suffrage for white women before black men or women. But Frances Harper, she just continues right on. Despite white women calling for their own voting rights first, she addresses them at the 1869 American Equal Rights Association Conference and continues to push for voting rights for black men. Here's Melba Boyd. It becomes a major split at a certain point. But Harper, what she does is she continues to work with um, them while she builds up the Colored Women's Club. Harper spends the rest of her career fighting for equal rights, job opportunities, and education for African-American women. She is a co-founder and vice president of the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs and the director of the American Association of Colored Youth. She's like, she, that's just the way she was. She said, well, I, I can deal with this part of them, but we're going to build up over here, and then we have our own organizations, but you can't isolate yourself. As one of my students said once, you cannot solve the race problem without dealing with the other race. You've got to keep the dialogue open. You've got to keep the conversation going. And I thought she was just so patient uh, about that. And I really admire her uh, for being able to do that. So I figured she must have prayed a lot. Let the globe, if nothing else, say this is true. That even as we grieved, we grew, that even as we hurt, we hoped, that even as we tired, we tried, that we'll forever be tied together, victorious, not because we will never again know defeat, but because we will never again sow division. In 1869, the 15th Amendment passes Congress. In 1870, it's ratified by two-thirds of states not including Maryland. Black men are given the right to vote. The women's movement is split. But taking a new approach, black women are building their own institutions and harnessing their own power. By 1877, it's all coming undone. Listen to our next episode for what's next. Who Deserves a Monument is developed, written, and produced by me, Sarah Lonas, with sound design, mixing, and editing by Chloe Van Tull. Our cover art is by Deshaun Fortune. Martha Jones's book is Vanguard, How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote, and Insisted on Equality for All. Melba Joyce's book is Discarded Legacy. Frances Ellen Watkins Harper is portrayed by Sonia Marie Ponce. This episode also features the voice of Danielle Lang. Who Deserves a Monument is a production of Booksmart Media. See you next time.